Hi there. Thank you for joining me for my podcast, Dr. Michelle's Vital Edge, the official podcast for optimizing your body, brain, and soul. This is my third episode today, and today I'd like to cover the topic of rhythm, routine, ritual. Uh, We'll take a look at various facets of rhythm including natural natural laws of rhythm and then also our body's innate ability to have its own rhythm and sync up with the natural world around us. And I'll dive into a little bit of, you know, biochemistry and our hormone balance and neurotransmitters that help us to stay in rhythm and also can sometimes be out of balance and then play a role in our health. And also just some of the kind of more ethereal ways of looking at rhythm and how our, our patterns in life can either really benefit us and create this vitality and vigor for life or can hinder us and kind of keep us rigid and stuck in some patterns that perhaps aren't optimal for us thriving while we're living So thank you again for joining me and please subscribe to my podcast on iTunes uh, and I'd love to have you be a regular listener. I appreciate you very much. So let's start out with the idea of rhythm. Of course, nature has its own rhythms, you know, the sun rising every day and setting every night and the moon patterns that affect us on a monthly basis, and also seasonal patterns that we see every year. Um, And those shifts, you know, between the equinox and the solstice, and how nature itself is innately in tune to those patterns of the world around it, whether it's trees, flowers, uh, the soil even, the air, weather patterns, etc., are very much connected and contribute to those seasonal and natural rhythms that we experience. And we, of course, are part of that uh, as human beings. Despite our having become somewhat industrialized and uh, living with our own kind of fake life light sources, um, nowadays, of course, with more different types of light stimulating us at all hours, really. And so those factors are certainly playing a role in health patterns and optimizing our function in the world every single day, whether it's sleep-wake cycles, our eating patterns, etc. And so it's really important to make a few distinguishing definitions, in my opinion, about rhythm, ritual, and, um, and then ultimately routine. And so I speak to my patients a lot about kind of syncing up with the diurnal rhythm of nature. And of course, that's the daylight, day and night, light and darkness patterns that our world provides every day in a 24-hour period. And of course, those also shift as we get closer into the winter and the winter solstice our days become shorter obviously and then in the summer we have longer days especially 
where I live in Bend, Oregon, where we're at kind of a, a higher latitude. And so we have very long daylight hours, um, more so if you're in a place like Iceland or Alaska, of course. And so those affect us in a big way. And we've all, of course, heard of circadian rhythm, which is our basically our physiological rhythm that we tend toward every single day. And that can vary a little bit from individual to individual, but approximately we, we experience that in a 24 to 25 hour window. And diurnal rhythm is basically when our circadian rhythm kind of lines up and synchronizes with the day, night, light, and dark schedules. And that's certainly not always true for every single human being. People work at night or work split shifts or tend to be kind of a night owl or an early morning riser for whatever reason, whether it's just their constitution or their job requirements, things like that. So there's various things that affect our ability to have a nice rhythmic diurnal rhythm that resonates with natural law. So circadian rhythm um, also can affect kind of some seasonal rhythms of reproduction, metabolism, and appetite as well. And so when we can optimize that circadian rhythm, our hormones fall into line and become more optimized and balanced. Our neurotransmitters serve us better. Um, All of our organ functions really are reliant upon that day-night you know, active activity during the day, sleep, rest and recovery at night cycles. So the more we can do to kind of stimulate that pattern, the better. Now, I'd like to make a pretty clear distinction here between rhythm, which I believe is very important to tend toward every day, every single day, and to do some things to, to optimize that um, fluctuation of adrenals, etc., which I'll get into in a minute. The difference between that and routine. And, you know, a lot of people think about routine as something that's really important for them. And I'd like to kind of play devil's advocate and say that sometimes routine is really not our friend <laughs> and can kind of steal our dynamism and our resilience and get us locked into a rut. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have things that we commit to on a daily basis. Uh, that's a different, a different thing, in my opinion. And I think that routine becomes something that people grasp onto and get locked into. And of course, we know this with exercise patterns. I mean, interval training has become a very uh, well-known way to fire up the metabolism, to get muscles to build in different ways. When we get stuck in a rut, interval training is one of the best things we can do, whether it's changing up, you know, if we do a daily run of 45 minutes or an hour or something, uh, some things to do to step that up or to sprint the hills or to run backwards for part of the time or to change the tempo and do some sprints for short distances at high speed and then go back to your normal pace, etc. And of course, with weight training, there's great ways to do um, intervals 
that step things up and help us lay down muscle in a different way. And also just keep the body guessing. And that's probably my bottom line with the idea of routine versus rhythm is that, you know, routine becomes this place where we are no longer resilient. We kind of have our baseline that we have to come back to in order to feel okay. And I see that in people's emotional patterns, for sure, in my patients, where they get kind of locked into, you know, I can only, I only want to feel a certain way and anything that threatens that feeling for me that may make me look at something that's hard to see um, or hard to, you know, shine light on can be very damaging and painful. And of course, yes, we have feelings around these things, but to be able to stir up the pot a little bit and and look at those areas that maybe have grown some cobwebs and are are hidden away to be able to shine some light on that and do some work on it can really help us move in a different direction that will benefit us in my opinion and i also see that with food in particular i think that a lot of people including myself get locked into a certain way of eating, certain time of eating, um, various patterns of food intake that may include, unfortunately, you know, shoveling food in their mouths on the way out the door or in the car or, um, you know, eating for comfort's sake, which is not necessarily a problem. It's just knowing those patterns that we really need to pay attention and get in tune with so that we can be aware of them and make conscious choices around that instead of just doing it habitually. And, you know, for a lot of my patients, and, and this has been a pattern that I've had to fight myself over the years is, you know, eating late in the day um, after dinner, you know, sitting down to watch a movie or to listen to a show or something. And that becomes our time of letting our guard down and and nurturing ourselves. And I think those patterns can easily look like, you know, overeating or eating something that is comfort food because we're trying to kind of let our day go. Uh, Some people include alcohol in that. And that's, again, it's not a huge problem. It's more how do we relate with it? Does it become a routine that we need every single night in order to shut off our day? or to calm ourselves down, or to be able to sleep even. And so I think the, the distinguishing factor here between routine and rhythm, um, you know, rut- routine kind of defaults to the ruts, to the stuck places, if we're not careful. Rhythm, however, blasts us open into being able to do some really dynamic work in our lives And it helps us resonate with our environment and with our natural law and with other human beings. The social facet of rhythm is really, really important as well. And I will touch on that in a minute. So, and then to throw in the idea of ritual, what I feel like happens when we have kind of a ritual. And again, those can push the extremes and become damaging to us if we're not cautious, if we guard them and uh, hold on to them with desperation. But if we utilize them in kind of a graceful way, ritual 
brings commitment to our rhythms. It allows us to, you know, take care of ourselves in a certain way that we hold strong and keep boundaries around so that it becomes a priority, that our self-care becomes a priority, and that we can do the things that we know are best for ourselves with a little bit of flexibility, obviously, so that we can have some freedom to live our lives fully every single day. So I've already touched on circadian rhythm a little bit. Um, that's one of our biological rhythms. Another, uh, another biological ry- rhythm is what's called an ultradian rhythm. And that is something that's less than 24 hours. So like our feeding cycles, our, our patterns for eating tend to run uh, shorter than 24 hours. And then we also have our infradian rhythms, which are longer than 24-hour period cycles. And, and an obvious one here is the menstrual cycle for women. And that's, you know, on average between 26 and 30 days for most uh, women. And of course, that also resonates and uh, syncs up with the moon cycle. So I, I think there's some value in recognizing that we, as human beings who once lived outdoors, and some people may still and we're nomadic in the early formation of our cultures, we resonated with those, those natural patterns of life. And I think we've, many people have kind of shut themselves down to that, not intentionally, but just because we do live in climate controlled, you know, light (laughs) available to us at all times inside our, our safe, warm, comfy homes which are amazing. So it's important to honor the fact that we have these privileges around us that keep us safe and healthy and warm, but we also should be incorporating some things that keep us in touch with that natural rhythm that surrounds us all the time. So we have um, various parts of our brain and uh, you know organs that help us to regulate with our our daily rhythms and one of the main areas of function are is what's called the HPA axis so that's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis so basically two areas of the brain and then our adrenal glands that sync up work together well to I, I like to think of it as a connection between the nervous system of the brain and the adrenal or the hormonal system of the body, endocrine system, whichever you want to call it. And this allows us to kind of have this, you know, central nervous system that's working for us. And, and there's, you know, feedback loops that happen. There's secretion of neurotransmitters and hormone stimulators. And then those circulate to the body and say, hey, adrenals, you need to secrete, you know, cortisol or hey, thyroid, please, you know, increase your thyroid, your T4, T3 um, output, because we're not getting enough. And so these feedback loops are very well synced and beautifully designed. And um, if we can support those systems in various ways, there's a lot of different ways that I'll touch on that we can support those systems, then we optimize that central nervous system and hormonal um, endocrine system regulation. And I'm going to go on a little tangent here just because this is something that's been really interesting to me as of late. You know, we we have this ability, it, there's a lot of debate on nature versus nurture, right? Where, okay, we've got this genetic 
makeup that we come into the world with, our DNA that is given to us by our parents. Um, and yeah, does that set us up just to be locked into that genetic pattern for our entire lives? Perhaps. Of course, there's some imprints in our DNA and our genetic makeup that we can't specifically change. Um, but, you know, why does one person in a family get a certain ailment, for example, cancer or whatever, heart disease or something like that? Diabetes is a great example. And why does someone else not? Um, is it all DNA? Well, no. Of course, we think about the nurture factor, too, which is our environmental exposures, our, you know, emotional support, our uh, having our needs met as, especially as an infant and in our early years, you know, there's a lot of research that shows how important that time is for making kind of a, an emotionally adaptable adult. Um, that if we have our needs met well in our younger years, that that definitely equates to being able to adapt to things better as an adult. That being said, of course, we have great examples of human beings who've been brought up in very terrible situations and have incredible resilience and rise above that and become incredible human beings later in life too. So it's, it's just, it's helpful when we have our needs met as a baby, as an infant, as a toddler in our younger years, because as humans, we are with our parents until, you know, our teen years, until we're ready to kind of set our wings and fly. Unlike a lot of other animals who are sent out a lot sooner than that. So I feel like that early time of life is, is definitely really important. So what I'm getting at is this concept of nature versus nurture and which one's more important. Well, there's so much debate about that and I don't necessarily have the answer because I think, you know, genetically we're starting to really understand a lot more about our DNA and different gene depletions and how those affect us. And, um, you know, we're seeing a lot more genetic markers that we can measure and, and understand more about those disease processes or the potential for them in life. And so this area is just getting a ton of attention. It's very exciting information. Uh, and useful, of course. But I also like to look at the idea of perception, our perception of our life, our world around us, um, even of things that people say to us. Our perception is kind of the gateway in to conjoining both that nature versus nurture, the genetic makeup, and our environment around us. So I like to give this example. I've given this example to my patients before. You know, say you have somebody who's experiencing some PTSD from some sort of trauma in their life, uh, whatever that may be. It's a very serious uh, condition that's very challenging to live with. And of course, we're getting some great understanding on how to manage it better. And I think I'm, I'm very hopeful for folks who have been struggling with that, um, that they will have some, you know, tools and resources available to them as we continue to to put some time into studying and researching how that works. But if you have somebody with, you know, active known PTSD, think about their perception of things in their life. Uh, often it's clouded with a, a place of, you know, stress response. I mean, everything 
many things that they see and perceive around them that to some of us without PTSD would be very innocuous to somebody with the PTSD kind of glasses on, they see it as a threat. They see, they respond physiologically in that fight, flight, or fright, or freeze um, condition. And so essentially their perception is dictating and narrating what their neurotransmitters are doing, what their endocrine system is doing, what they're secreting, and then ultimately how their body is operating. And so I love that idea that we, you know, with some help, somebody with PTSD can learn how to change that perception so that they're not automatically triggered by maybe it's just a loud noise or something, again, that would be very benign to the rest of us who aren't seeing life that way or who haven't had that kind of traumatic experience in life that triggered those things. So we can downregulate those responses with, with some effort and with some good tools and change our perception. And, you know, one of the things that I have studied a lot is mindfulness and yoga. And of course, martial arts uh, falls into this category too. And I've done a lot of Qigong and Tai Chi and all of these Uh, modalities essentially depend upon us changing our thought patterns, you know, and decreasing that chatter of the mind and allowing ourselves to be objective observers of our thought patterns and our perceptions. And how do we look upon, you know, the things around us and do we create stories around what we're seeing that perhaps isn't really reality. Maybe it's something, you know, oh, we assume if we're paranoid about something somebody said, we ruminate about what could have, what could have come of that, or, you know, make up these stories in our heads about how that could have panned out or what they're thinking about us or whatever it may be. I mean, I, I'm not belittling any of that because I go there too. And we, as humans really do that dance of social, um, interaction and assumptions and perceptions and and thinking that we understand what somebody else is doing or saying or how they feel about us and I think those often come from a place you know ultimately of fear and instead of a place of love because if we if we were perceiving things from a place of love um, then our chatter in the brain would be lovely. <laughs> it would be, you know, presuming the best about somebody else and about ourselves. And I think a lot of times if you sit back and listen to the conversations that happen to be going on in your brain, when they're not from a place of deep-seated consciousness, they're often a little bit ugly. And in, in no other place would, in our lives would we allow somebody to speak to us like that. Uh, I've read a great book called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. That's one of my very favorites, and it's been a a really big changer for me. Um, And he talks about the chatter in our brain as the, the bad roommate and how there's no way we would want to live with somebody who spoke about us or to us the way that our own brains often can do. 
you know, oh, you're not good enough. You're not going to do be able to succeed. Um, life is too hard. You're the victim, you know, etc. And not that these thoughts aren't valuable in some way. Um, we can learn a lot about ourselves. But if we can learn how to turn that chatter down a notch, just just ratchet it down so that the volume isn't quite as intense, the um, persistence of it is less, and the frequency is less. We can kind of, you know, keep that tempered so that we can operate from our hearts a little bit. My yoga teacher would say, um, you know, the mind shouts and the heart whispers. And if we can tune down and turn down the volume of the mind and its, its chatter, we allow the heart's whisper to percolate up. And that's really our truth. So that's a slight tangent, but I, I love the idea of, you know, perception being kind of the gateway, the catalyst, the, the place where we have some control over how our neurotransmitters and our endocrine system fire. I mean, we've all seen, for example, an elite athlete, you know, I, I like to think of like an Olympic diver stepping out on the board ready to perform in front of millions of people, something that they've practiced so many times beautifully, right? Perfect every time. And they're out there to show the world and to show themselves, most importantly, what they can do. And almost always you see them take a big, deep breath. And it's one of the best ways we can get back in tune with our body, you know, tell the vagus nerve like, hey, do your job, calm my system down because I need to be able to perform and override all the chatter that might be happening in the brain. So we have various tools, you know, that allow us to calm the nervous system and to affect our endocrine system to be able to operate at full throttle instead of in fight, flight, fright, or freeze moment. So I think that we, if we are you know, mindful, we can use those tools and those, um, those avenues to kind of shift the way we are in the world. So ultimately, um, I mean, there's, you know, there's the internal clock that we have that it, all of us know, you know, when, when our kind of normal time to wake up in the morning is, I mean, I can't tell you how many people are like, ah, I just wake up at 5.30 every morning. I can't, I can't change that even when I'm tired. And I see it in my kids. They kind of get up at the same time in the morning, even if they've been to bed later for some reason or even earlier. Sometimes they still sleep, you know, until 5.36 in the morning or as my teenager <laughs> sleeps till later than that in the summer. But we have this kind of internal clock and it's, you can call it the SCN, which is the suprachiasmatic nuclei, and those lie in the hypothalamus. And they literally are a clock, and they regulate our, our daily um, rhythm. And, you know, we all know that if you travel for a long period of time and change time zones, um, even if it's just across the country, you know, that that change in time zone um, can really affect us for many days after our return. And so jet lag is one example of how we really mess with that 
with that internal clock, the SEN, and uh, even just our our seasonal time changes that happen can affect that clock for for many days um, and really throw people off, and it affects our hormone balance as well. So I like to work with my patients on different ways to kind of own their rhythm every day. And one of the one of the ways I like to do an intake with my patients, especially first time people, is to ask them what one of my professors called the seams. And I'll go into what each of those are. So it stands for S is sleep. Um, E is energy, A is appetite or digestion, and then I have three M's, the mood, uh, menses, and then I like to throw in movement, and then lastly, sex or libido. And so sleep is probably one of the most important things, as we know. I mean, all of us have been unrested at some point in our lives and know how challenging that is. So postpartum time is a really challenging time for women and men who are raising babies because their sleep is so disrupted. And of course, we know that people can be tortured, literally, with sleep deprivation. And so our nightly rest and recovery and regenerate is one of the most important times of our circadian rhythm. And so to have some pattern to the sleep is very, very important. That being said, I also think there's really something to be um, touted for messing with it a little bit. I mean, just like with the interval training in exercise and activity, you know, challenging our sleep patterns is important to do as well on a somewhat... um, you know, mild kind of fashion. So not like every single night we should be pulling all-nighters or staying up into the wee hours, but just knowing our resilience, a way to gauge that is to know that we can bounce back after having traveled or having sleep disruption for one night for whatever reason, whether it's the full moon that's affecting us and it's bright out or uh, because we're restless or something like that. And to be able to bounce out of that is also a sign that we are optimizing our resilience in life. So energy, of course, is another way to understand, you know, how are our adrenals functioning? Are we secreting enough cortisol in its kind of sine wave pattern? You know, we get these spikes early in the morning, as we should. That's kind of what what draws us out of bed. And if we get some daylight early in the morning exposure and a little bit of movement, that's really helpful too and just gets our body started for the day. And so optimizing that stimulus of cortisol in the morning is a really important thing to do. And that has the effect of making sure that we have the drop off of cortisol at the low point of the sine wave around midnight, which is kind of the optimal time for it to be low. And so if we do things in the morning to help support those adrenals and secreting cortisol in adequate fashion, um, that can really make a difference for kind of setting the tone for our full function through the day. 
And so one example I use is coffee. Um, you know, of course, many of my patients, especially new ones, will come in and be like, you're not going to take my coffee away. <laughs> and no, I'm not actually, because I love coffee too. It's a beautiful thing. It's one of my rituals, but there's some ways to utilize it that can be useful and to use it almost like an herb instead of um, a stimulus to get going. And so one of the things I really like my patients to do, and I know this kind of goes against some of the newer training protocols that some elite athletes are doing with, you know, uh, intermittent fasting and then doing their coffee and fat content before they train. And I think there's value to that as well. But for most of my patients, especially a lot of the women that I work with, you know, eating before that first cup of, or even that first sip of coffee can be hugely helpful to make sure that we have the fuel reserves to get us through the day. So what I see often is folks will, you know, oh, I can't do anything until I get my first sip of coffee in the morning. And that's the first thing I do. And then by two o'clock they're tanking and they can't function or they need a nap or they need another cup. Um, or some other sort of, you know, sugar cravings, things like that kind of hit in the afternoon. But if we start in the morning with, you know, especially hydrating first, um, getting a little bit of movement in, I like the idea of getting out into daylight, whether that's, you know, exposure in our own rooms because we have bright windows or getting outside into the sun. That's, um, we know that light therapy in the morning can really help with um, making sure we're, uh, getting that cortisol rhythm to to do its job and, and line up with circadian and diurnal rhythms. So that's very important. And the other factor, you know, we are innately fasting overnight. And so in the morning, you know, the term breakfast means breaking fast. And so to do that with a sip of coffee is not ideal. That's basically like stealing from our savings account with ever, without ever replenishing it because coffee is a stimulant and it, you know, stimulates this kind of the surge of the adrenals without giving them some fuel. And also, you know, from an herbalist kind of mindset and Chinese medicine perspective too, coffee is a great digestive and it's also a descender. So like it kind of draws things down into the body and so I like to use it as a digestive, right? We all know that if we have our first cup of coffee, like most people are ready to go um, to the bathroom soon thereafter. And so if we eat some food first, it's a great way to utilize that coffee to do its job and as more like an herb. And it also gives us that foundation where we're not running on, you know, cortisol adrenaline and we're not... Um, you know, playing around with our insulin regulation. So I recommend to my patients to eat something first, whether it's, you know, a little piece of chicken sausage, an egg, um, something with some fat in it, like almond butter or smoothie or something like that first before they have their first sip. And then to enjoy their coffee after the fact and, and use that as um, kind of a ritual instead of a must-have. Um so appetite and digestion, you know, that's an important factor for how things are working in our systems every day. Um, are we hungry at the right times or, you know, what's right for us? Because everybody's a little bit different. Are we listening to that 
appetite and eating when we need to? Are we also able to be zen with times when we're hungry when maybe we don't need to eat and recognizing the difference there? Like for example, at night, you know, after a meal, um, I've, I've really been enjoying learning more about time-restricted eating and seeing how that affects people in their ability to build muscle and lean down a little bit. And also just to, to optimize, again, that diurnal combination of circadian rhythm and natural rhythm. Um, so time-restricted eating is a little different than intermittent fasting. And I really love this concept, especially for my female patients who tend to you know, as women, we um, are very well designed and hardwired to hold on to fat because in times of famine in our past, we've had to nurse babies or carry children around. And so we've needed those stores more than men. Um, you know, our bodies are just designed differently. And I think to honor that, I, I've seen women really trigger some eating issues, past eating issues. And also, really, their bodies want to go into starvation mode really quickly with some intermittent fasting. That's not true across the board by any means. And I know plenty of women who do great with intermittent fasting, but not everybody does. And so I'm really cautious about um, how to integrate that into somebody's life if, they're try if their goal is to try and slim down, lean out, add some good muscle you know, I think the time-restricted eating is a great way to go because basically it just limits our eating patterns to kind of honor the, the darkness and light patterns that we have that we're exposed to every day. And so we really, our ancestors and our, you know, if you look at animals, I mean, they're not, unless they're nocturnal, they're not eating in the middle of the night. And so, nor should we. And I think if we can um, at least have some conscientiousness around what time we finish eating each day and then, you know, not starting up again until a certain time the next morning. I play around with, you know, usually 12 to 13 hours of time restricted eating. So, you know, I, I try not to eat for more than 12 hours a day. That works well for my body. And if I want to drop a little bit of weight, then I just shorten that time a bit and keep my eating to 11 to 10 hours. And that works great. I mean, just not eating after dinner um, you know, it depends on your schedule and when your activity levels are too. For me, you know, I go to karate at night. And so um, having to eat dinner a little bit later because I don't usually want to eat before two or three classes, it's kind of challenging to me. Uh, so I just have to be really mindful of like, okay, I'm going to eat right when I get home and be done eating by 7.30 and then make sure I don't eat anything until at least 7.30 or 8 the next morning. And to just get a little bit zen with that too and just know that I'm not going to die and I'm not going to starve. And um, I've had several patients who've been incorporating that more and they feel really good. They sleep better. Their digestion works better. Things are a little more rhythmic in their digestive function too. And um, it definitely can, can stabilize their energy and sleep patterns as well. Uh, mood. Of course, mood is very important and is a great indicator via my patients and for myself on how resilient we are and how well we're managing the stressors in our life. And of course, we're always going to be exposed to stress. I mean, that is just part of our culture. It's part of being a living being on this planet, whether we're a lizard or a bird or a dog or a human, it doesn't matter. We're going to encounter stress and what I find is most important is how we manage it. 
And we're not running from tigers anymore. We're not being pursued in those ways, hopefully, and most likely not. Um, but we're still wired to, to deal with that kind of uh, stress or threat. And so how do we manage the little things every day? And I think a lot of people uh, bottle that stuff up and, you know, because they don't know what else to do. Um, I think movement is one of the best ways to eliminate stress and not just exercise. I mean, I think that is a great way. But I also, I mean, for example, my kids and I got in a really small fender bender. A guy hit us from behind. It was nothing. It was minor. Um, the car wasn't damaged, anything. But we, we were all a little bit jarred just because it was kind of startling and shocking. And so we got home a few minutes after we talked to the guy who hit us. And um, I made the kids do some shaking, like Qigong style, in the kitchen. We just stood there and laughed about it and shook. And I was like, if you got, you know, stress in your neck and shoulders, like shake them out and wiggle around. And they thought it was hilarious and funny. Um, but then afterward, we all felt better. You know, it was like we purged that stress. And there's actually some different methodologies for, for doing that when people are under a lot of stress. Um, even if you're just at work all day, sitting or standing or whatever, uh, getting up and moving around, you know, changing our perspective a little bit that way, getting outside, taking deep breaths. Um, I always used to joke that smokers, if, the, if it weren't for the smoking part, have it pretty dialed, right? They take, they take a bright break from work pretty often. They get outside, they are out in fresh air if they weren't smoking. Um, and then they're socializing too. So there's this great, um, theme that if we eliminated the smoking part of it, that would be a really awesome habit to do. And so people should just do that anyway. Um, go step outside, walk around for a little bit, change things up and, and kind of get rid of that, that stress from work or the postural stuff that happens when we sit too long. Um, so mood is, is extremely important. And, and I, my feeling as, as a human being with all these, you know, the five senses plus probably more, um, we're kind of made to experience all the different emotions and the different feelings that a human being can, those breadth of feeling feelings that come through the the challenging part is when we get stuck in a certain place and so we should be able to move about those feelings they well up they move on um, what are we left with maybe some fresh perspective maybe we purge them we feel better um, but when we get locked in to whether it's anxiety or sadness or anger or frustration um, depression etc those are the, the times when I the red flag goes up for me with my patients where I want to try and figure out ways to help them, whether it's referring them to a counselor or to do some EMDR or hypnotherapy or exercise or anything, you know, art therapy, things like that, just different tools to, to move through those feelings. Menses, um, and I think males go through kind of a cyclical pattern as well and honoring uh, those cycles, you know, doing things supportive. I, I put a lot of my female patients on a ground seed rotation where they do ground flax seeds for the first half of their cycle. So from day one of period through ovulation, a tablespoon a day, fresh ground, and then second half of the cycle ground sunflower and or sesame seeds, tablespoon a day for those two weeks. And that can really help optimize the fluctuation of estrogen progesterone and just allows kind of an extra 
surge and uh, um, of omega-3s and then also the fiber in both of those seeds when they're ground can I, I like to call it the bus like act as kind of the liver's filtration system to help get rid of the extra estrogen especially that we're exposed to these days whether it's xenobiotic form or in our food etc um, so we want to try and filter that stuff out and allow our body's natural rhythms to be optimized so that you know if I have somebody who comes in with terrible PMS or um, extreme bleeding or spotting things like that different patterns to their cycle then I that's just a little indicator to me that the hormones aren't optimized and so there's a lot of things we can do whether it's liver support or making sure they're sleeping or making sure their thyroid is working correctly that can really help to bring those rhythms back into good order so that they feel better and also so their body's functioning better as well. Uh, movement. I ask about this mostly because a lot of people come in with pain. I see a lot of sports medicine injuries, um, nerve pain, things like that. And so I want to see that people are able to move well and that they are moving their bodies by choice, you know, and, um, making sure that their joint mobility is good and that they're getting various kinds of exercise that keeps their body and brain stimulated on a regular basis. And by that, I mean, you know, honestly, like five to seven days a week. I mean, I think we should be moving. It doesn't have to be extreme every one of those days, but we should be doing something that offers mobility and strength and flexibility and some cardiovascular stimulus as well. Again, the interval training idea is great. I think doing, you know, some sprints here and there if you're a runner or um, mixing it up with some strength training is hugely important and just getting those body patterns to work well. And then also bringing in things that are more mindful like yoga or tai chi or, um, you know, just some primal movement stuff, rolling and breathing patterns and things like that. So that's really important. And then sex and libido. Um, obviously in a very important part of life, uh, connection with another human being and our libido is a great indicator of how our hormone balance is and also gives me an indication of how people's moods are as well. And so, you know, that's, that's a good gauge for me when somebody says, ah, you know, I see a lot of women who've had kids and, um, you know, maybe they're just having a hard time kind of revamping that femininity and that sensuality in themselves. And so to be able to work with them, a lot of times it is the adrenals. They've just been so hammered by not enough sleep, not restful sleep. And so that plays a huge role in their willingness to, you know, have a high or their ability to, to foster that desire to have, um, a sexual activity and, and to increase their libido. And so that's a great indicator for me as their practitioner. Um, and also in my own, in my own life to know, um, that things are functioning well, that my stress levels are optimized and I'm responding to stress well. And, um, because think about it, I mean, animals under stress are, are less likely to be pro procreating. They're going to be running from whatever, um, stressor is, is in front of them, whether it's a predator or some sort of natural um, disaster or something like that. And so we want to make sure that we manage the stress response once again, because we are going to be exposed. It's innately inevitable. It's always going to happen. We're going to have stressors in our lives. 
it's how we deal with it, how we manage it, how we um, move through it that allows us to kind of get that rest, digest, um, vagal nerve, stimulus, parasympathetic nervous system helping us out again. So um, so the seams are a great way to kind of use um, information and symptoms, uh, imbalances to to understand more about yourself and understand where uh, you might be able to incorporate some improving ha- patterns and, um, and optimize your rhythm every day. So uh, lastly, I'd love to just briefly touch on heart rate variability. That's been another area of interest for me. You know, in listening to a lot of hearts in my career thus far, and I worked with infants and children a a whole lot in the beginning of my first 11 years in practice, and I still enjoy working with families. And so I've gotten to listen to all ages of hearts, and there's some interesting information out there about heart rate variability. And so basically when we, we, you can call it inspiratory tachycardia as well. When we, when we breathe in, naturally our heart rate goes up a little bit. And when we exhale, like especially a slow, deep exhale, we decrease our heart rate or we have bradycardia. And that is the way it's meant to be. And in children, it's more pronounced and um, more defined. And you can really hear it. And I also hear that in athletes as well. People who are training um, have that nice variability to... So again, it's this uh, rhythm within a rhythm. So the heart rate itself is one rhythm. But then to see that fluctuation and change... that shows me that we're not stuck in routine or rut, that we're adaptable and that we're able to, um, you know, physiologically respond to the things we need to be able to do in our lives. So our heart rate innately goes up when we need to do something, whether it's a physical performance Um, it's running up the hill, it's, you know, saving our child from some terrible disaster. It's, um, even when we're in a conversation that maybe is heated and we need to be kind of passionate and show our boundaries or, um, speak our mind. So our heart rate is, is supposed to go up and then it's supposed to bounce back after that too. Uh, that's one of the reasons stress EKGs are so much help, more helpful in understanding if somebody has a heart condition, um, it's much easier to see that when we put them under a little bit of duress first and then we see the recovery pattern. And that's often when we'll see some changes in the EKG is during that recovery time. And so if we don't, if we just do a resting EKG, we don't necessarily see um, those problems appear. So, um, but heart rate variability is one of those things that I think we can almost train in ourselves. And, and when we get stuck in routine, we uh, minimize that variability and we also I think personally that that translates into decreasing our ability to be adaptable and to be changeable and we're we're a species that really is supposed to be kind of stimulated and forced to grow and forced to change throughout our lives I don't care if you're you know five years old or 95 years old we should have some adaptability in us that allows us to deal with various things that come our way because we don't have control over our environment all the time, obviously, if at all. 
And so to, to kind of stimulate that resilience within ourselves, and that's been kind of my word of, word of the day is resilience because it is such an important piece uh, um, as a human being who's moving and maneuvering through this world and through our lives um, and uh, trying to be productive and, you know, community oriented, et cetera. And so some of the ways I think that we can stimulate that heart rate variability, I've already touched on a little bit with interval types of exercise. Um, breathing exercises are huge, you know, whether it's uh, deep breathing multiple times a day or just even taking a deep breath when we're under stress. Um, you know, meditation, of course, is a great way to kind of slow all the heart rate down and, and get in tune with what that feels like. Um, and then stimulating the heart rate to go up and then rebound back like interval training is awesome for that. Even if you're just on your, you know, if you have like an elliptical trainer or something and you do two minutes of real high intensity and then regular rate for two or three minutes or 30 seconds of high intensity and two minutes of rest, you know, those kinds of interval patterns. And like I mentioned already, hill sprints and things like that, just keep the body guessing. I love, love, love martial arts for that because, there's so much of even just in our forms themselves, there's a lot of stopping and starting and there's a rhythm and flow that we can um, kind of own and make our own in those patterns. Um, and I do think that's really important for translating that into our heart health as well. Uh, even just the, the nervousness of, <laughs> of entering the mats and, and having to perform or doing sparring, which is so much, you know, it's very cardiovascular and grappling surprisingly is too, even though it's completely different body patterns than sparring or doing forms or self-defenses. So I really like that, um, that, uh, stimulus that it gives us to kind of keep our hearts adaptable in those moments and I think that also just the left-right brain stimulus and cross-body patterns that martial arts innately has and also many other forms of exercise, um, you know, CrossFit and uh, um, anything that, that requires us to kind of transfer our weight or use left and right body patterns equally, gymnastics, things like that. So those are all extremely important in um and keeping our brains stimulated and, and adaptable, but also our heart as well, which we need both of those for living a full life. So to sum it up, we, we are a part of our environment. And as human beings, we have the privilege of having a mind that allows us to make very conscious choices about how we operate within that environment. And so we can choose to, you know, stay up late. We can choose to expose ourselves to um, screens <laughs> late at night. I'm guilty. Um, we can choose when we eat. We can, we have so much abundance in our culture in particular that we can make sure we have plenty to eat. And so um, in, in optimizing our circadian rhythm, and, and hopefully aligning that with diurnal rhythm and then also seasonal patterns, you know, maybe that looks like 
eating certain foods that are available to us in the seasons. I mean, we can get bananas anytime here, but they don't really grow here. So maybe they're not the best food to eat year round. Maybe they should be limited more in the summer months. That's just one example. Uh, getting outside and getting some cold exposure, maybe that's helpful for stimulating some strength and, and hearty response to our environments um, and, and the climate that we might be exposed to. Um, maybe, you know, jumping in a lake in the summer is a great way to keep our pores op optimize our skin functioning well and, and our, uh, some dynamism to our heart when we jump into a cold body of water like that. Um, you know, sleeping with the windows open when it's a full moon, that just helps us be in sync again with those natural patterns that are happening around us all the time that we could easily block out if we so chose to. Uh, so just start bringing a little bit of awareness of your circadian rhythm into your life and, and start looking with a very discerning and objective, if you can, eye at the areas where you've been locked into routine and where you've kind of gotten stuck in a rut and and what can you do to stir that up to mix it up to change some things um you know while keeping that thread of of rhythm and ritual as kind of your baseline so i challenge you to you know, maybe even write down a few things that you notice about yourself. Okay, every day when I get home from work, the first thing I do is eat such and such or pour myself a cocktail or, um, you know, I, I have to take a nap the minute I get home from work. Those kinds of, of routines that you feel very attached to. Maybe you start by, you know, coming home from work and you take your dog out and throw the ball to him or her or you get home and do a 10 minute yoga session when you're feeling tired in the afternoon and you're feeling a little bit of a crash um, or doing the same thing at work when you feel like you want that extra cup of coffee in the afternoon that you know is going to impact your sleep later maybe you get outside and just do some, you know, cross body crawling or you do some marching or you do some squats or roll around on the floor in your office if you can. You know, different ways when you wake up in the morning instead of, you know, first thing grabbing your your pot of coffee, maybe you have some lemon water and or some electrolytes and take a little bit of time to uh, write or read um, an inspirational, you know, few pages of a book and um, get outside and move around a little bit first and then take a bite of food or three or five <laughs> and then you fix that cup of coffee. So the, the rhythm can stay and the ritual can stay, but how can we undo those locked in routines? So uh, I would welcome your feedback, and I hope that this has been informative in some way, shape, or form, and that you have a few things maybe you can take away um, from this concept of rhythm and, and really trying to align our individual circadian rhythms with that diurnal pattern of natural law. So enjoy your afternoon. Get outside as much as you can. Play. 
have fun. Of course, laughter is key. So laugh at yourselves, laugh at others in a lighthearted way. And I will look forward to speaking with you in the next few weeks yet again. All right, take care.